it was a, one of the great accidents in my life. And I've had a lot of really good accidents, I think. Hello again, or maybe hi for the first time, I, I don't know. A couple weeks ago, I did a deep dive on the theory of cognitive dissonance. It was the grand conclusion of the first season of this podcast, but I'm releasing some bonus episodes that are the full interviews with some of the experts in cognitive dissonance. Last week, I posted my interview with Joel Cooper, and this week, I'm excited to share my conversation with Elliot Aronson. Aronson got his PhD in 1959 from Stanford University, working with Leon Festinger on some of the first experiments testing dissonance theory. From there, he went on to academic positions at Harvard, the University of Minnesota, the University of Texas, and finally at UC Santa Cruz. In 1972, he authored a celebrated social psychology textbook titled The Social Animal, now in its 12th edition. In 2001, he co-authored the book Age of Propaganda, a book introducing the general public to persuasion research. And in 2007, with Carol Tavris, he published Mistakes Were Made, but not by me, which introduced the world to the ins and outs of cognitive dissonance and other cognitive biases. The two of them also had an article in The Atlantic last month about the role of cognitive dissonance in people's choices during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd also recommend his autobiography, Not By Chance Alone. Anyway, as a junior social psychologist myself, it was obviously a real thrill to get to talk to him about his life and his work. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with the incomparable Elliot Aronson. So I thought one place that we could start is that actually one of my favorite psychology origin stories is the story you tell in your book about how you stumbled into the world of psychology while you were at Brandeis. Would you mind telling that story? Oh, yeah, I was... um... I was very naive, and I had to declare a major. Um, well, as a ba- the background is that I was born in 1932, in the middle of the Great Economic Depression, and my father was uneducated. He had something like a sixth or seventh grade education, and was an immigrant, and he was unemployed. He was an unskilled or semi-skilled laborer, and when the Great Depression hit, we didn't have enough food to eat or uh, enough money to buy to keep the, the house warm in the wintertime. We, we were really poor. And then my father died while I was in high school. And my notion was one of the reasons you go to college is to get a good job afterwards. And I figured, well, what am I going to major in? And I decided to major in economics because it seemed like a practical to do, but I didn't, I wasn't liking it very much. And then one day I was having a cup of coffee with a young woman that I was trying to impress and she had to go to class. And so I figured I'd go with her to her class. And she thought it was a lecture class in in introductory psychology. And I figured maybe we could sit in the back of the room and hold hands or something like that. And those were innocent times. (laughs) And I, got into the class and it was a course in introductory psychology being taught by a professor who was brand new to the university, had just gotten there that year or maybe the year before, uh, named Abraham Maslow. (laughs) And I didn't know that name or anything about him. He started talking and what he was talking about was uh, the psychology of prejudice. Now, when I was a kid growing up, in a blue-collar town, I, I had to go to Hebrew school because my parents were fairly Orthodox Jews, and every Jewish kid went to Hebrew school. And, and we lived in a neighborhood that was, I think we were the only Jewish family in that neighborhood. I was very anti-Semitic. And coming home from Hebrew school, especially in the winter when it was like 6 o'clock in the evening and dark, I was frequently waylaid by gangs of teenage hoodlums who would push me around, yell anti-Semitic epithets, and sometimes they'd even rough me up. And after one of these uh, encounters, they roughed me up a little. And so I was sitting on the curb, nursing a bloody nose and a split lip, and 
trying to clean myself up a little before I came home because I didn't want my mother to see the blood and get scared. And I was sitting on the curb and pondering why these kids hated me so much when they didn't know me and why they hated Jews so much and wondering if they were born hating Jews or if somebody had taught them to hate Jews. And I was maybe nine years old and I didn't know much, but I was really confused by that. Why, why did they? And I figured if they got to know me better and saw what a, what a sweet and innocent and harmless little kid I was, would they like me more? And then I wondered, gee, and if they liked me more, maybe they would hate other Jews less. Maybe that would show them that, you know, we're not so bad. And those were th things I remember vividly. It's one of my vivid childhood memories. So there I am sitting in Maslow's class, and he's talking about the psychology of prejudice. And he raises the very questions that I had raised 10 years earlier while sitting in that curb, on that curb zone in Revere, Massachusetts. And I got really excited, and I was holding hands with <laughs> the young woman that I was at that moment courting, and, and uh, I immediately let go of her hand and started to take notes. And I, I lost the girl, but I gained something much more valuable, I think, because the very next day I switched my major from economics to psychology. And gradually I was, I was a kind of a shy kid when I was in college, but uh, Maslow made it easy for me to get to know him. And I got to know him quite well in uh, the last, uh, two years of my uh, college career. And uh, it was, um, it was a, one of the great accidents in my life. And I've had a lot of really good accidents, I think. To uh, set the stage for the dissonance stuff, what was psychology like at that time when you, you were entering Stanford, just to put into relief how dissonance theory really shook things up? What, what were sort of, the, sort of the prevailing views at the time? And, and why was dissonance so revolutionary? There were two major threads in psychology at the time. One was still the psychoanalytic. Uh, Freud was still very uh, important in uh, the, uh, the mid-1950s. And the other major thread, of course, was uh, radical behaviorism. B.F. Skinner was um, a very powerful force. And it entered into social psychology, uh, especially, well, both both entered into social psychology, but more so general reward reinforcement theory, which says, you know, we do things in order to get reinforced. And uh, Skinner, as you know, is primarily a, a learning theorist, but he was non-theoretical in the sense that uh, he was just a very practical guy. How do you get uh, rats and humans uh, to do things uh, and to remember things and you do it uh, by schedules of reinforcement so that uh, learning takes place that way. And, and then by extension, uh, we learn to love the things that we're rewarded for. We learn to we love our mothers because they give us food and tenderness and love. And, you know, even Harry Harlow's work on, um, on rhesus monkeys, which was aimed at challenging reinforcement theory, but what he showed in his, in his most famous experiment was that um, infant monkeys prefer creature comfort uh, to actual food reward, even if they're hungry. And that was an interesting finding, of course, but it still can be, can fit under the rubric of reinforcement theory. Whatever is reinforcing by definition is the thing you want to do, whether it's food or creature comfort. Um, and that will make the learning more effective and also by secondary reinforcement, make you really love the provider of that. Well, that was the dominant thing. And um, what uh, cognitive dissonance theory showed is that human beings think. And because we think, we try to figure things out. Uh, and the way I would look at it, the way I came to look at it, is that we also have a self-concept 
that is extremely important, an extremely important part of our nature as humans. And so for me, when I started working with Festinger, that's what really excited me. I took a seminar he was teaching, which is a, he was brand new at Stanford. He and I arrived at the same time, 1956. He has a really, um, a, a an enfant terrible. He was really a very bright guy, 39 years old, full professor, one of the highest paid faculty members on campus at age 39. And and I, as a first year graduate student, and Festinger also had a, reput had a reputation for being a genius. And he also had a reputation for being an extremely harsh, critical, impatient, angry, a uh, young man, which he was. Uh, he also had the capacity to be warm and encouraging, but in order to get to the warmth, you had to <laughs> go through an awful lot. There was a very high barrier there because he, he did not suffer fools gladly. And his seminar, there he was, this high-paid guy, and he was teaching a seminar, his, the first course he taught at Stanford, which came in the winter quarter of my first year as a student. And hardly anybody wanted to take his course because his <laughs> reputation had preceded him. And uh, there were only about five of us in the class. And uh, he was everything he was cracked up to be. He was a genius and he was very, very tough. Um, but nobody, nobody would dare to come into that class the least bit unprepared because he could be very, very harsh, but all in the service of getting us up to speed. And um, well, I, mean, I don't think that was his motivation. His motivation was to teach the material and to get us thinking about it. Um, it was tough, but boy, was it good. And he was just developing the theory of cognitive dissonance uh, at that time. And what came out of that course were two experiments, one that Judd Mills and I designed on the severity of initiation, uh, which was, was an idea that I had. And I ran it by Mills once when we were walking back from the classroom, from Leon's class, and Mills got excited about that idea. And we began, and we, and we designed the experiment and, uh, uh, and brought it to Leon, brought the design to Leon, and he was very excited by it and said, go do it. And uh, and he couldn't find anything wrong with it. He liked it as we had set it up. The other one, which was, I think, the, the I think the single most important experiment ever done in social psychology was the one he, uh, it was by Festinger and Carl Smith, Merrill Carl Smith was, an undergraduate at the time, a senior, and it was that was the experiment where if you're offered one dollar or twenty dollars, you do you do a terribly boring task for forty five minutes, like packing spools or turning a screw. It's sort of like what people might do on the assembly line. You do this terribly, and then after it's over. You rate the task, and everybody rated it as terribly boring. And then you then you're told, in a way that, um, in a very effective way, that there's somebody waiting out in the next room to be the next subject, and and you are in the control condition, in the experimental condition, that that person, that future participant, is about to be told that. Uh, the task is really interesting. We just want to see whether if they're told it's interesting, they will find it more interesting. But you have to tell it, be told in a casual way. So you're just coming out of the experiment. I'd like you to tell that guy that it's a really interesting experiment and explain why you found it interesting and everything. And uh, I'll pay you a dollar for doing that. In one condition, they were paid a dollar. The other condition, they were told they would be paid $20, which they were. And Carl Smith actually handed them the money, and they did it. And then afterwards, somebody interviewed them, somebody from outside, from the psychology department, 
but having nothing to do with the experiment about what happened in the experiment, was the experimenter uh, um, polite and stuff like that, and then uh, what was the task you did and how did you, and, and, and how did you like it? And uh, the results were that the people who were paid $1 convinced themselves that the task was very interesting, whereas the people who were paid $20 really could see it for what it was, a terribly boring task. Now, um, that flew right in the face of uh, reinforcement theory because by by the notion of general of secondary reinforcement, um, the prediction would be, and I actually talked to Fred Skinner about this a few years later when I was uh, teaching at Harvard, and he couldn't really explain it. He really couldn't <laughs> explain it. He tried. We had lunch together just once, and uh, and he thought um, he thought well I I'll, I'll come up with an answer that in terms of reinforcement theory and I'll give you a call and he never did give me a call so but it it was an amazing experiment now the experiment I did with John Mills showed that if you go can, can I actually work, pause you here I want to I want to ask you about the initiation study in a bit but can I ask you a couple of questions about the Carl Smith study. Sure. So that, like you said, I think that was definitely such an important moment in dissonance because it just the evidence was clear and confrontational to what people were thinking at the time. And what I'm curious is, did you all have a sense of how important that was about to be at, at the moment when you were running it and seeing the results? Or did that only become apparent later? No, no. We knew it at the time. We knew it at the time. Um I actually worked with Merrill Carlsmith to, to bring him up to speed as an experimenter because he was a, a pretty um, stiff guy when he was an undergraduate. Uh, he got a lot better. Um, he became my graduate student at Harvard. So, you know, we, we stayed together. But as an undergraduate, I knew him and liked him at Stanford when I was a first year graduate student there. And uh, so I worked with him. I trained him to be an effective experimenter. Um, and we knew it at the time. We thought, you know, I wasn't sure this that experiment would work, but I understood the theory. And when, that, when that, those results were coming out, it was very exciting. Hmm. We knew what we had there. Yeah. More so the, the Festinger Carl Smith experiment than any of the others that we did. But that one was really provocative. And I, that's why I think it was important because it really got social psychologists thinking about thinking, thinking about how important that, that, that brain we carry between our ears is because people do distort their perceptions in a, in a way that, um, well, the way Festinger put it, that reduces the cognitive dissonance that comes from the thought, why did I lie to that person? Why did I tell him that lie? Well, actually, it wasn't such a lie. The, the task wasn't so bad. Actually, turning that screw was sort of fun, and I got some exercise from my wrist or whatever. <laughs> but you can blind yourself to, uh, you know, you can't, you can't turn a, a sow's ear into a silk purse. But you can turn it into some kind of purse, and uh, and that's what people do, and um, and a lot of the debriefing we did after these experiments really showed us how deeply the subjects were involved in the process of dissonance reduction to the point where they would argue with us when. Um, when we gave them the explanation of the experiment after it was over, um, you know, in, in my experiment, for example, uh, where we showed that uh, people who go through a severe initiation and a lot of unpleasant effort in order to get into a group like the group better than people who get in uh, going through little or no uh, effort to get in. Uh, when I explained our theory to them, afterwards most of the people in the um severe initiation condition would say 
Well, that's a very interesting theory. So you're saying that that people who go through a lot of effort to get into the group, they ask themselves, why did I do all this work to get into such a boring group? Well, actually, you know, it wasn't so boring. There was a lot of stuff in there that was interesting. You know something the, the guys would say to me? Um, I, I, I'm, it's an interesting theory, and I'm sure it's right for some people, but that's not what happened to me. <laughs> I really liked the group. I liked it from the outset. And, and, you know, since there was hardly any overlap between the severe condition and the other condition, and the subjects were randomly assigned to condition, of course, the fact that they really believed that the theory didn't apply to them, but that they really liked it was extremely exciting because it, it showed to us, it showed us that dissonance reduction operates below the level of consciousness. Yeah, so we can talk about that initiation study in a little more detail. So I recently went through the original paper again, and one of my favorite quirks of that paper is that it has one reference, which is to the 1957 dissonance book, <laughs> yep. which is not something you can get away with anymore. Um, I, know. I know you can't get away with it anymore. And boy, someday I'll tell you about my my dissertate my PhD dissertation defense. But mm. I'll save that story for later. Okay. Well, so for the initiation, I'm just curious. Can you recall where the initial idea for that came from? I forget. You said it was your idea that you told told to Mills, right? Yeah, I I had been reading for another course um, some stuff by um, John Whiting, the anthropologist, uh, and he was talking about how uh, different um, indigenous uh, groups. Uh, usually some have uh, initiations into adulthood, some don't, um, with a child becoming an adult, and some of the initiations are extremely severe. And so I, I was reading that, for of course I was taking anthropology, and it dawned on me, because I was also taking uh, Festinger's course in which he was talking about distance theory, and I was thinking, well, uh, I wonder if the people, the like the tribes in Africa that go through severe initiations, if they end up being more patriotic and really liking being a member of their tribe much more than people who go through a mild initiation. That would be interesting because they, they would really have to believe that their tribe was more exciting because they went through all that. And I began to think about um, uh, the military and, you know, being in the Marines and going through basic training and, 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 uh, and thinking, and I was, and I was thinking, boy, you could compare people who are drafted into the army with people who volunteer for the army. And therefore they're volunteering for this, to go through this terrible basic training. They might end up really liking the army better than uh, than people who were drafted, and then I thought, no, but that that wouldn't work because they might they probably liked it more before they entered the basic training. And then I thought about fraternity initiations, and then I thought, no, that wouldn't work because if a fraternity required a severe initiation, then people who didn't care about being in that fraternity wouldn't have joined that one if it had a reputation for severe initiations. If they just wanted to be in a fraternity, they would go to any fraternity that required a mild one. And so it would be predetermined. It would have nothing to do with the initiation, but have to do with the reputation of the fraternity. And so then I thought, well, you have to do an experiment. So we have to randomly assign subjects to different conditions. And that's what I started to talk to Judd with, because I had thought about this the night before. And then we went into Leon's class and he was talking about similar kinds of things, or, you know, similar ideas. And then it, it began to clarify in my mind. And within a few days, Judd and I had the design of an experiment. Yeah. So could you describe what that experiment looked like um, and, and what the results were? Uh, briefly, it was 
we wanted people to volunteer to be in a discussion group that was to meet for several times. And what could that discussion group be that would make people want to volunteer to be in it? And um, uh, so we thought, well, if they were talking about sex, you know, this was the 1950s, all students are interested in sex. And then we thought, okay, uh, so that would be the discussion group. And then what kind of initiation to have? Well, it has to have something, some barrier to it, some difficult thing. And then we thought, well, what if they had to show that they could talk about this by, um, by reciting a list of really provocative words and passages from uh, novels like Lady Chatterley's Lover that describe sexual things. And then we realized that the only way to do it, what we started with the first experiment was with college women. Uh, and they had to, we, ha ha we asked them to go through either a mild initiation where they read um, dictionary words like sexual intercourse or something like that, or um, uh, words that could be embarrassing to them, uh, and, uh, and, and read the passage from Lady Chatterley's Lover, and then it's in order to get into the group. And then we had a third condition where there was no initiation at all. And then they put on headphones and were told, your group, the group that you're about to join is already in session. And these people have been meeting for a couple of times already. Uh, and this is, and this is, and they put on the headphones. We turned off the microphone because uh, we don't want you to, um, you don't want, we don't want you to participate yet, but it was really a tape recording of a group discussion that was extremely dull and boring. And this was a group that they had just committed themselves to join for the, for the next few sessions. Um, so the people went through this very initiation, we hypothesized, would be uh, asking themselves, how come I went through hell and high water and to, to get into this boring group, and they would begin to see some of the boring things as a lot less boring than the people in the mild or no initiation condition, which is the way it came out. Yeah, I, I sort of sometimes think about that as similar to when you spend a lot of money on something, and then you you kind of have to like it, <laughs> or you have to hang on to that possession for a little bit longer, uh, even if when it arrives, it's not quite as as perfect as you initially thought it was. I think that's uh, it, any any effort or any commitment, whether it's money, whether it's uh, embarrassment, whether it's uh, um, hard work, uh, you will like the thing better if you work hard for it. You will find things about you will blind yourself to some of the really negative aspects of it. Uh, I think that's why people stay in marriages often longer than a rational person would. A marriage that isn't going anywhere, a marriage that is um, abusive or not fulfilling or anything like that, because there is an investment in that. Um, it, people usually don't get divorced when they first start realizing that this, this marriage is never going to work. Uh, they, you ask people who have a divorce after five or six years of marriage, and their main answer will be, um, I stayed in longer than I should have. Um, and they don't quite know why. They try to find the good things in it, and they try to ignore the negative things in it. And the more energy and effort they put into it to begin with, the more likely they are to do that. And in common terms, just to even make this even more clear, especially I, I like the way that you put it in, in the book with Carol about uh, it's you're justifying these things. You're looking for justifications or rationalizations for something that you've already done. Yeah. Um, and the way I put it now is uh, I think cognitive dissonance is more po is most powerful when it threatens your self-concept. Most people 
think of themselves as uh, smarter than average, uh, more ethical than the average person, uh, more competent and kinder than the average person. So if you can get them, if, you know, if they do something that makes them feel stupid or unkind or unethical uh, or incompetent, then they will have to try to justify uh, that thing that they've done by convincing themselves that it was worth it. That if they hurt another person, for example, and there's a lot of research on this one, if you do damage to another person, you try to convince yourself that that person deserved it, that he would have done the same to me if he had the chance. And that helps you maintain your image as a nice person in spite of the fact that you did that person harm. Uh, if you do something really stupid and you think of yourself as a smart person, you have to convince yourself that it was a reasonable thing to do, that you you couldn't have done it any other way, and and most people would have done it that way, um, and that that's a very very powerful notion. Yeah. So I'm wondering the, in how the self concept is related to dissonance. I'm curious. Are you saying that this is an alternative account of what dissonance is, or that this is like a compounding factor to dissonance, as Leon originally put it? Uh, as Leon originally put it, any two cognitions that don't fit together can be dissonant with each other. Um, so, uh, one, if one looks at the initiation experiment, one can say the cognition, I went through hell and high water in order to get into this group, is dissonant with the cognition. This is a lousy, stupid uninteresting group mm -hmm. you know okay that's the way leon would put it and that's the way i put it when i designed that experiment four or five years later when i was thinking about what is dissonant and what isn't dissonant and by the way that's in leon's book theory of cognitive dissonance which came out in 1957 he has an example of of a, an event that he says isn't dissonant. He wanted to show where, where does it end? And he said, look, suppose you go driving in a dark night and uh, it's raining and you're on a lonely country road and you get a flat tire and then you go and you look in your trunk and you don't have a spare tire. So he says, do you experience dissonance? And, uh, he says, no, you don't in the book. You don't experience dissonance because you might be scared, you might be angry, you might be frustrated, but there's no dissonance there. And I remember when I was a graduate student, uh, I said, what do you mean there's no dissonance? What kind of an idiot would, would, would go driving late at night without a spare tire? And he says, yeah, but what's dissonant with what? And I couldn't answer that question. And that's, there was a little bit of, um, the reason that Leon came up with that example is the, the, the theory was not really clear about what is dissonant and what isn't dissonant. And it, you, could, you could design, you could come up with a hypothesis like the initiation experiment or the Festinger Carl Smith experiment and yeah, that, that's clearly dissonant. But finding out what isn't dissonant, you, you really have to set the parameters of a theory. And that's what Festinger was trying to get at. And I remember in 1959, when I was like this, I, I was his major domo and training the younger people, the younger students uh, to, do, to be able to do the research and stuff like that. I remember joking with them once and when someone would come to me with a hypothesis and say, well, Elliot, do you think that's dissonant? I, and I would say, you know, I'm really not sure. If you really want to know what's dissonant with what, ask Leon. <laughs> and Leon got so, he got so angry at me for doing that because I did it as a joke, you know. But, I, but in reality, 
I, Leon and I would argue about these things all the time. And I couldn't, and I couldn't put my finger on it. But a, a couple of years later, after I, I got out of uh, Stanford and I was teaching at Harvard, I was thinking, okay, let, I, I sat down and I actually came to the conclusion that really at the center of dissonance there, what really makes two cognitions dissonant is if one of the cognitions involves the self. So I could recast, for example, the initiation experiment is, I am a very smart person and I've done a very stupid thing. I went through hell and high water in order to get into a group that turned out to be boring and worthless, okay? So those are the two cognitions. One of them is my self-concept. If my self-concept was that I was a dumb guy who always did stupid things, there would be no dissonance, you see? So, but for most things, the two ways of looking at it are highly correlated. So it doesn't really matter a lot, but in some situations, so then I went back and I, and I remember seeing Leon at an APA convention and saying, uh, okay, I got it all figured out. Uh, here, and, and with your example of the guy having a flat tire on a lonely country road late at night, and I would say, what kind of an idiot would go out? And that's exactly the point, that my self-concept that I'm a smart and careful person is dissonant with the cognition that I went out driving on a lonely country road without a jack in my car okay, or without a spare tire in my car or with a spare tire that had gone flat in my car. These are things that smart people don't do and that's what's dissonant. And Leon said, you're right, but, but he, like we, so, but we argued about whether I, he, whether I should be stating it that way because he thought that limited the scope of the theory. And he was right that it did limit the scope of the theory, but sometimes you have to limit the scope, the scope in order to make it more accurate. And there's usually a tension between how broad the theory is and how tight it is. And so my idea was not to say, it wasn't a new theory. It was saying at the center of the theory, dissonance is most painful when it comes into contact with an aspect of our self-concept. And here's the thing, Sarah Silverman talks beautifully about what happened when she found out that her dear friend, who she really loves, Louis C.K., was guilty of doing something really terrible. And she could not reconcile those two things. Well, there's dissonance there, of course. How could my dear and wonderful friend, who I love, have done such an awful thing? That's dissonance. My point is, it would be much more dissonant if she had done it. It was for were her self-concept. So that, yes, we do experience dissonance when our self-concept is not involved, but it's strongest and most powerful when our self-concept is involved. And gradually, Festinger came to realize that that was true. For you, thinking about that, part of dissonance or that claim about dissonance, what, what stands out as some of the strongest evidence that really the self-concept is what magnifies this inconsistency? Well, the, the, the things that, some of the things that we did, that Carl Smith and I did, and that John Darley and I did when he was my student, showed that you can convert the self-concept into a an expectancy about what you're able to do. And we could build up expectancy. We, we did experiments on performance expectancy on a task that people didn't know much about. We called it social sensitivity. 
And to some people, we gave them experiences that made them realize that they were not very good at this, at social sensitivity. They were socially relatively insensitive. And we gave them several examples, uh, several situations in which they did poorly in what we called social sensitivity. And then we gave them a situation in which they did very well and they were surprised by that good feeling and didn't accept it. They tried to reject success because they had already established the fact that they weren't good at it. Now that was a very daring experiment, but it's since been replicated several times in a lot of different ways. And it shows that if you if we can take a small aspect of the self-concept, like how well you do on a particular task, get you to know that you're not very good at it. And then when you do have a, a very good performance, that gets rejected. And of course, we set up all four con possible conditions. And we did show that, that the self-concept plays a role. Not everybody has a high self-concept. Most people in the world walk around with a self-concept that's at least better than average, so that when we do an experiment, any kind of behavior that we would consider negative uh, or stupid or unethical or unkind would be would be dissonant with the self-concept of 95% of the people in the world. It's it really is a Lake Wobegon world, you know, where where almost everybody thinks they're above average on almost everything. Would you say that dissonance is like fundamental or or some fundamental principle of social psychology? The context for this question is dissonance has survived a long uh, and uh, generative life in social psychology. And the question is, how much of that is because it really taps into something that is really fundamental to what it means to be a human person in a social world? Whereas the alternative, when I talked to Joel Cooper, he seemed to suggest that some of what the staying power has been that it's been a confrontational theory, that that people have enjoyed arguing about it for that long. And maybe there's nothing uniquely special to the theory. It's just captured the attention of psychologists. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have uh, a lot of respect for Joel Cooper, but I think he may be wrong on this one. I think it's a basic aspect. Uh, of human behavior, not not just of social behavior. Uh, there's a lot of situations in which cognitive dissonance works, uh, not on a purely cognitive level, but on a cognitive slash em uh, emotional, motivational level that have very little to do with social psychology. And I think that it's a fundamental aspect of human behavior that has been long ignored. And because it's been long ignored, it's produced a lot of excitement and it survived an awful lot of negativity. So that when we first came out, when Leon first came out with the theory and we were doing experiments, there was a lot of skepticism and people were trying to find reasons why uh, the initiation experiment worked or reasons why uh, the Festinger Carl Smith experiment worked that were in terms of, uh, of reinforcement theory. And none of these alternative explanations held up. And then in the 1980s, when a lot of attention in social psychology turned to pure cognition, then people were trying to come up with alternatives to cognitive dissonance theory by saying, well, you don't really need motivation. It's a purely cognitive thing. Daryl Bem's notion, for example. And Daryl Bem's notion is perfectly reasonable for a great many experiments that were done under the rubric of cognitive dissonance because Daryl Bem's explanation can account for it. But then there are a lot of experiments, Joel Cooper having done some of them, uh, the Zana Cooper experiment, which I really like, it shows that 
you really do need motivation. So I think the theory is basic to human nature. That notion has been ignored for <laughs> for a great many years. But now in the past 50 years or so, 60 years since uh, Festinger did the theory, oh my God, 64 years, it's produced a great many experiments, over a few thousand, I think. It, it's still a reasonable explanation for an awful lot of behavior in society that would seem puzzling on the surface. My last question for you, sort of diversion, uh, sort of uh, moving away from dissonance specifically, but you've lamented the fact that high-impact experiments, what you call high-impact experiments, have largely vanished in social psychology or declined over the years. And so I'm curious, what, what do you find so important about that methodology of high-impact experiments, and what is psychology missing now that those methods are out of fashion? Well, high-impact experiments... Um... Um, because what it is is something important is happening to the person. I mean, we all know that um, that the laboratory is an artificial environment. And how can anything that happens in the laboratory be taken seriously? That's what uh, we were facing in the 1950s. But when you take an experiment, and let, let me say, let me take the highest impact experiment I can think of off the top of my head, Stanley Milgram's obedience experiment. Uh, you take that experiment and you say, yeah, it's an artificial experiment. I, look, I, uh, how many times in your life have you been called on to give an ex a series of gradually increasing electric shocks to somebody in the next room and you hear them screaming and uh, and uh, you're giving them 450 volts. How many times are you apt to do that? It's unrealistic. Well, it's only unrealistic in the sense that that particular thing never happens to a person, but it's extremely realistic in the sense that anyone who serves as a subject in that experiment, it has to take it seriously and has to behave as if it were happening to him in the real world, because that is his real world, even though it's in the confines of the laboratory. He's sweating real sweat. He's very upset at the time that it's happening. Uh, that's what I call experimental realism. That happens in a, in a high-impact experiment. If you're doing something simple, some paper and pencil thing, or asking someone how they think they might behave in a given situation. The person has the ability, and people are very smart at this, to sit back and instead of reacting the way one would react in the real world, they're thinking, let's see, how would a normal person react in this situation? And they do it. So that there has to be something happening that provokes the individual to perform the kind of behavior he would perform if it happened to him in the middle of Fifth Avenue, for example. Why move away from that? Well, there are reasons for moving away from that that I fully understand and am sympathetic with. Uh, human subjects committees, IRBs, would... Um, a lot of the, the, the experiments that people would like to do can't be done anymore because um, of the snowflake phenomenon that, that IRBs consider human beings to be extremely sensitive and hypersensitive and uh, could fall apart if they were in an experiment like the Milgram experiment or certainly anything like it. I, w I did some research recently, not recently, uh, but in the 1990s uh, to get people to uh, conserve energy and to get people to uh, uh, to wear condoms when they're having sex and things like that. Uh, now, the, the condom experiment, which I was doing because we were in the middle, in the 1980s, we were in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. And so it was aimed at saving lives or at least preventing some sort of venereal disease to get 
college students to use condoms. And uh, the IRB wouldn't let me do the experiment, even though very little was happening to the subject of the experiment. And it, it took me two months of argumentation to get them to relent uh, when the subjects who were in the experiment were very happy to have been in the experiment. So I think that the IRBs have been, we've given them too much power. But the other, there are other factors involved. Um, I, you know, it, it sometimes takes three or four months to do a high impact experiment. It takes an awful lot of time. And uh, when, when people were doing experiments in cognitive uh, psychology, and it became very easy to do an experiment. People can do an experiment now on computers, and you can do you know thirty subjects at once, uh, and and it becomes a lot easier. You can do you get more publications that way, and that you know people who count publications, and they do the deans do that. I can understand why the, some of the younger psychologists want to get a lot of uh, publications out. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the high impact experiment is more realistic. It gives us answers to questions that we couldn't have gotten any other way. And I, I really hate to see the interest in that diminish. I also think there's something to those experiments helping illustrate the concepts we're doing. So, for example, you mentioned the water conservation study, the hypocrisy, and and what's amazing about that study is that you were able to measure how long people spent in a community shower, right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I love, I teach that all the time because it, it so clearly shows that the behaviors that we're doing every day are being shaped by those same processes in a way that, that a think about a time intentions measure doesn't illustrate as easily. Yeah. Well, all you need is a waterproof stopwatch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't want to take any more of your time. Elliot, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this stuff. This was really a treat for me to hear some of those early uh, anecdotes about where dissonance came from and your involvement in it. It was a pleasure, Andy. I enjoyed talking to you. That's it for this bonus episode. I'm going to take a couple weeks off, but I'll be back again soon with new episodes of Opinion Science. To make sure you don't miss that triumphant return, uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Facebook or Twitter. It's at OpinionSciPod. And subscribe to the podcast using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use. You can get the links at OpinionSciencePodcast.com. Hey, and while you're there, uh, take a second to leave a nice review of the show. After 20 episodes, it already feels like forever, but the show is still very young and has a lot of growing to do. Rating and reviewing the show, sharing it with your friends and family, all of that goes a long way. So thank you for your help in spreading the word. Until next time, take care and be kind. And I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.